You're listening to Music Matters with Jason Tram. On this program, we feature interviews with distinguished members of the musical and performing arts community across multiple genres, from classical to contemporary, sacred to secular. We explore the most important issues affecting the arts today. Music Matters brings diverse innovators, ideas, and audiences together to create a broader musical community to inspire new solutions to unprecedented challenges. Today we have a wonderful guest, Neil Murgai, and um, I'm calling this episode on creating a unique style, and I cannot imagine a, music, a musician who has a more unique and distinctive style and a synthesis of elements into a personal expression that has been fascinating for me to get to know, and I look forward to hearing his words today. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, thank you for being a part of this experiment. Remember, um, the audience can ask questions by chatting in any questions, and we can put that on the screen so we're going to chat the questions in and we can ask neil and um make sure you join us welcome neil murgai joining us from brooklyn today neil is a sitarist and overtone singer as you heard if you listen to the beginning a percussionist a composer a teacher co-artistic director and co-founder of the brooklyn raga massive which is a very important musical ensemble in brooklyn obviously a raga inspired musicians collective um neil's music ranges from indian classical to original compositions and contemporary cross-cultural collaborations with influences spanning the globe he has appeared on the David Letterman show with uh, many famous artists and has performed in Lincoln Center and in jazz clubs like the Blue Note and festivals. So thank you so much, Neil. So tell us about your unique journey as an artist. You have such an interesting range of music and uh, we look forward to learning about your work. Thank you. Thank you. Is my video freezing up here a little bit? Are we getting a good video feed button? It's coming in okay. Okay. All right. I'm going to try to fix that while I talk. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here and, and talk about music. I haven't talked to you in last, last year when we worked together. Yeah, I think we worked together, was it two years ago? Yeah, two years That was ago, an interesting gosh. project. It was a <laughs> ballet project and a ballet where the choreographer put together this unique hybrid. Uh, it was, the story was Jungle Book, but uh, he tried to get the East-West connection by putting on a um, American a string quartet and a beautiful raga, a sitar player, a tabla player, and it was really incredible. And we, that's where we met. It was great to be here and uh, and to talk about uh, all this stuff. There's been so much going on, and so much that I've learned in this time. So tell me how you started your journey in, into music, and were you always um, did you always were you always exposed to Indian classical music growing up? I I grew up I, I heard it, uh, but I was my family weren't uh, big fans of that, but I definitely heard it. My my father had a couple of records, and uh, and also some you know a little, little bit of Bollywood music as well. Um, but I'm, I also grew up on roll and uh, and jazz. And folk music, American folk music, and and then I got, got into I was a DJ at my college radio station when I actually studied civil engineering back in the day. Wow! And so, your were your parents musicians as well? No, my mom did sing a little bit. Oh. She's she's a singer, and uh, she she sang like folk songs, beat beat. They they called themselves the beat, the Beatles, the like the, but the beat poets kind of like, not the Beatles, Fun. but the beat band in Delhi, like the college band. Fantastic! And so you you grew up on um, so you may have had some Indian music in your home, but you grew up on rock and roll and very American kind of setting and uh, in kind of bio. You you played the trombone as a kid. That's right. That's right. And, and you know I played I, and I played trombone when I was young in, you know, jazz band, a concert band, marching band, and I picked up guitar uh, around the time that when I went to college to study engineering, and then I really got into this radio show where I was uh, kind of, it's uh, called Continental Drift, and I was, uh, you know, playing music from around the world, and I would, each week I would do these journeys, and just 
learned about so much music from around the world, and it's really set me on the path that I that I'm on now. And um, including the Indian classical music was a big part of that. And uh, so, go ahead. No, sorry, it's wonderful. Um, so you're you're you were working as a DJ, and you and you've explored. So what other types of music have fired your imagination? So Indian classical, we're going to get into that because you studied in India. You were surrounded yourself with that. That's going to be an incredible job. We want to hear about that journey. But uh, what are the types of music that you feature on that show? Yes, also, you know, uh, Persian music, Middle Eastern music, um, bagpipe music from various parts of Europe, uh, Choirs like the the Hungarian women's choir that was uh, or Bulgarian women's choir and Hungarian music as well. Hungarian folk music. I remember I, I interviewed Les Mystères de Voix Bulgare when that was like the big thing in the early '90s, and um, uh, yeah, various uh, uh, South American music from Brazilian music. Um, God, just so much, so much. Only African. From from various countries in Africa, um, Ali Farkaturé was a huge inspiration. Um, Nasrat Fatah Ali Khan. What is your what is your your exposure and, and your love of uh, world music? How did that shape um, what you view music to be? Really, uh, it, it had a tremendous impact on that. You know, I, I consider. You know, we talk about traditional music and we talk about fusion music. I mean, my whole world is fusion music and, and you know, some people call it world music. I really don't like that term. Um, but uh, what I view is that fusion music is, is uh, you know, it's always being created and every music is a fusion music, really. Even like... Indian classical say that you know it's supposed to be you know this very traditional thing, but it's also a fusion of uh, you know folk music and temple music with uh, with actually Persian music because there were these you know um, various waves of, of um, Mughal invaders that, that took over the north part of India and brought with them their music. In fact, the, the sitar is originally a four-string Persian instrument. Tar meaning string. So that's why you have guitar, sitar, setar, many instruments with tar in the name. And uh, so the setar with four strings, originally three strings, because se means three in Farsi, um, that traveled to India and then it kind of fused with an Indian instrument called veena and then became its own thing. So, you know, uh, what I like to say is that uh, music is traditional if you're grandmother says it's something anything your grandmother says that's pretty much tradition right so if your grandma so that's you know is maybe 30 50 years it makes it a tradition you know so it's all it's all fusion at some point and and then later becomes tradition i always remind people in classical music that classical music is such a broad term if we specifically talk about 1750 to say 1810 that is the classical period but classical music is always absorbed from multiple cultures and has become part of the culture and even today it absorbs um, lots of influence from the east lots of influence from many different parts of the world and it's constantly changing and evolving as new people come into it totally evolving all the time right right yeah. so specifically when did you decide to become a professional musician and um, how did your journey progress well I guess it was sometime in uh, my college civil engineering time uh, I was playing guitar a lot and started writing my own music and then really bit the bug at that point um, I, and it was kind of an evolving thing. I wasn't sure that, oh, I'm going to be a professional musician, but I just knew I had to pursue it. And so after I graduated from college, I, I worked for a little short time and saved up a, a bunch of money and went to India for a year and a half. And that was my, my goal was to go to India for a year and a half and, um, and study Hindi and and to learn sitar, and I even had a possibility to get a job there. But uh, once I, I got there, I was quickly like, no, I'm not going to be trying to do a civil engineering job at this time. This is, I'm going to travel around India, kind of rediscover the place for myself, because I had been to India many times with my family, and have lots of family there. Um, 
over the years, but this was the first time that I went kind of on my own terms and traveled around by myself and saw, you know, it was a less protected environment, shall we say. What did you learn from the musicians there, and um, how was it like to absorb this? I mean, I, the, whenever, I, whenever I look up Indian classical music and study, and I, I talk to people about Indian, it's such an ancient art form. It goes back probably a thousand, two thousand years before Western classical music, which I just find incredibly interesting that the traditions have such deep roots. What was it like studying it in the land where it was born? Oh, it was it was amazing. You know, there's the what we call the guru shishya relationship. Uh, you study with a teacher, you know, it's an oral tradition, and uh, you're getting this, you know, first-hand knowledge in the same way that it's passed down for for a long time. But uh, I should also say that, you know, the music is constantly evolving, and even the way it was performed, say, 100 years ago, is very different from the way we hear it now. Um, because it, with each, it is a, it's an oral tradition, so it's you know with each person adds a little something to it or maybe changes it in some way. So you know the rags are even uh, can be very different from the, the way they were uh, hundred years back. Um, That's the, the good thing about performance practice is it's constantly evolving. We bring our we bring ourselves into each piece, and that's. That's uh, it's great to remind to young people who are coming up in music that um, that the recordings you have today are totally that it's always evolving. Every generation brings their own kind of style and sound and innovations to these. And um, what, so, the, did you have a sitar when you came? Did you come with a sitar? Did you get a sitar there? No, I got one there. I, wow. I you know, after traveling around India, then I decided that uh, I wanted to go to Varanasi, uh, which is a city right on the Ganga River. And because um, uh, I had this music scene there. And so I was living there and I found a, a teacher was recommended to me. And I went and found him. I had his name on a slip of piece of paper. And uh, and it, the rest of it said Wisconsin Bhavan, like near this laundromat, something. Uh, then you, you asked for this guy, Ramu Pandit. Now, Ramu was a uh, he was one of the teachers for the Wisconsin University uh, Urine in India program. And so uh, he was a tabla player and um, he works with the sitar player, Rabindra Goswami. So he, so somehow I managed to find him. Uh, these are the days, you know, this is 1995. There was not much internet going on then uh, or maps. Um, <laughs> but, but I managed to find him and Rabindra Goswami set me on my path. I, you know, I stayed with him studying the basics uh, for a good six months, just, just playing sitar. And then I uh, moved back to New York. Uh, uh, well, I actually moved back to Atlanta, where I was at Georgia Tech. And then, um, and I guess that's when I really decided that, you know, I had to pursue music, even though I was still a novice at sitar and uh, still learning so much. Um, I just, I just had to pursue it. So describe to our viewing audience who may not be as familiar with the sitar, uh, describe the uh, the number of strings and how the instrument works and gets such a unique sound. Yeah, it's got 20 strings on two layers. Maybe you can see that there's two bridges here. The lower layer, I play with my pinky nail, and the upper layer, I play with this wire plectrum and uh, basically these strings underneath they're called sympathetic strings because they ring when you play the corresponding note on the main string so as I kind of stop the, the top string you can still hear the, the, the string underneath that's tuned to the same note resonating so you tune these strings to uh, so you tune these strings, the sympathetic strings, to whatever scale or raga that you're going to play. And raga, of course, is the form of Indian classical music, and literally, literally means that which colors the mind. Mm. So it's said to be like a painting in your mind, where each note is a different color, mood, and feeling, and then you put them together in different ways, and uh, you know have scales. Uh, they can be different ascending and descending and characteristic phrases that correspond to the raga. So the sitar is also made out of a, um, a, a gourd, 
you know, similar to a pumpkin that's cut in half and dried out, and uh, teak or tune wood. And then the 20 strings on it, uh, and the, the tuning pegs are all kind of a friction fit. So it's very sensitive to uh, humidity and stuff. This time of year, it gets gets hard to play, which is kind of crazy because it's like this all the time in India. Right? <laughs> so they're used to it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Is it sensitive to air conditioning and, ch- and rapid changes of uh, of temperature? Yeah, yeah. Anytime it changes, then it can just the tuning can drift and and it can sound different also. Actually, I should point out that the the magic of the sitar sound is comes from the shape of the bridge. The cur- there's a slight curvature. It's really hard to see the curvature. Um, it's very slight, and what it is is, you know, a guitar has a flat bridge, and it, the string is just coming off the edge there. But the sitar has a curved bridge, and the the string is then vibrating against that bridge, right? And you, you can have more or less curvature depending on how you like it. And that gives the buzzing sound that is characteristic to sitar. That buzzing is just that one string creating all these different overtones. A lot of the high, or the buzzing is kind of enriching the high overtones of the string. Um, you can really hear it bass string so that that curvature you know affects the amount of bridge and what the what the uh, the bridge is called is juari and juari means to give life to the sound basically so it gives the life to the sound by adding these rich overtones I love the philosophy how that's inspired it's, it's in, in, integral to the uh, to the playing technique of the instrument it's so beautiful we have our first question from the audience Eve from Manhattan asks is it hard to tune a sitar and how long does it take you to get the instrument in tune ah good question it is challenging at first um, but very re- rewarding once you learn how to do it because it just it's you know it just sings back to you And then as you as you play more, you know, it stays better in tune and, um, you know, but but if you have to like to change all the strings and retune it, that's like a two hour job. <laughs> Only two hours. OK. Glad yeah. Harp players have uh, they're, they're like similar. Oh, like, yeah. OK. Strings tune differently as they're newer and older. And that's uh, that's interesting. Right. Right. Do the sympathetic strings go out tune often as well? Not as much as the. The, the kind of the main string I, I you know even with 20 strings I'm actually playing melody on 80% on one string oh. and then another 20 on on, an, on one more string um, and then I have these bass strings which I occasionally play but when you're playing faster what you do is you kind of clamp them down because they, they just kind of get in the way um, so you're playing the bass strings only when you're playing very slowly in the what we call the alap which is the kind of the free form without any any uh rhythmic structure um development of the rag that happens in the introduction to a, playing a raga so who are some of your um idol who are some of your favorite um your favorite uh, sitar players well i you know i've gone on to learn from um pandit krishna mohan bhatt um i found him when i moved to new york in like uh, 99 and I've been learning with him since so he's one of the great artists of our time and he he comes to New York uh, for a good part of the year maybe eight months a year and I've been learning with him here and and go back to Jaipur where he lives in India and have learned from him there as well over the years um, also uh, Nikhil Banerjee is definitely one of my favorite uh, stars Pandit Nikhil Banerjee he uh uh, and of course, Pandit Ravi Shankar, you know, you got to give it up to to Ravi Shankar. He certainly brought um, brought sitar to the to the West, certainly to so many people who may not have had exposure to it otherwise. That's absolutely right. And you know, I might not have even be playing sitar today when we're not for for Ravi Shankar. So I definitely 
give give props to him and uh, studied some of his music and performed some of his compositions from you know so he he composed a lot of music outside of Indian classical as well. Yeah, you know, I I heard a sitar concerto which was fascinating to me. Philip Glass and that was really interesting to me that that they had this um, he he collaborated with so many different styles of music. It was very interesting to hear him uh, to hear his mastery and to hear his um, delving into uh, other art forms and to. And you know George Harrison's experiments with him, obviously, and him studying. Yeah, fascinating. The the impact he had on culture, very special. His his record with Philip Glass is one of my favorite. Definitely desert desert island record, there. And I performed some of the pieces from that as well. Ah. So what is um? So you you you've studied you've immersed yourself into Indian classical music. You went to India into the homeland, learned it there, brought it back to New York, and now you're combining elements. How did you start adding other elements to the um, to your unique musical synthesis? Yeah, well, you know, it was always there because I started really with guitar. It was the first thing that I really, and of course trombone, but I don't really stop playing that. Um, but when I was back in Atlanta, I happened to run into this uh, Persian musician, Sohail Zulfanun, who plays the setar, the Persian four-string setar. His father is Jalal Zulfanun, who's a great master from Iran. And um, so we started, I, I had him on my radio show, and then we started hanging out and playing music together. And then one day he handed me the daf. He's like, hey, you want to check this out? And he taught me, and then... Pretty soon, I, I was after that. I was accompanying him in Persian music concerts, classical and folk Persian music. And his father came from Iran, and we toured a little bit together. And so I learned a lot from him. And then I, uh, you know, eventually moved to New York. And of course, New York is the hotbed of music from all around the world. And that's that's why I came came back to to New York. And you know, I used to go to every World Music Institute concert back in the day. Um, sometimes I, I didn't have the money to go to them, and I kind—I admit I second acted a lot of those shows. <laughs> if you know what that means. We've all done that, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tell my undergraduates, um, I, I'm a, I love conducting opera. I would go to the Met when I was student teaching in in, in uh, Westchester. I would sneak into the Met for a standing room, pay ten bucks a ticket, and then every act. As people would go home, I would stick their chair and move forward so I could see the singers better. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we have to do, you know. We're we're uh, driven to to like eat up this music. So I came to New York to to get inspiration. You know, Atlanta was a much smaller city, and there were there were definitely some interesting musicians there. But um, I had to come and and explore the the world. I also had family up here because I grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York, actually. I'm not far so from I where some, I live. I live yeah. in, in Nanuet, so we're up a little bit up the uh, 287 or 87. Yeah, so then I just ended up playing with uh, so many different musicians, um, you know, some hip-hop and dance bands and uh, and then form my own bands and, and, and of course, all while uh, studying Indian classical music and getting, you know, deeper and deeper into that um, as, as a root and basis. Um, for a lot of the things that I compose, but um, you know, I also studied uh, some Western composition and you know and um, and Western music theory, and and uh, you know, started composing my own pieces, uh, working with I don't know I don't know how many bands uh, and musicians from around the world that I've worked with over the course of my career in New York City. I'm also the only sitar player ever to play on the David Letterman show. Wow, what was that like? <laughs> with- that was pretty fun with uh, with Cindy Lauper and Wyclef Jean. <laughs> I, I got a call from Cindy Lauper the day before. She's like, "Hey, this is Cindy. Can I speak with Neil?" And then she was like, uh, "Yeah, this gig is union. Are you union?" I was like, "Well, I'm not union, but uh, you know, I'll I'll join the union. You know, <laughs> I will be tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I will <laughs> by tomorrow, <laughs> definitely." And it just happened that my I I was getting my MFA at the time in interdisciplinary arts, which I got at Goddard College. And that really brought it all together for me, uh, where I studied mathematics of music and uh, the metaphysics of music and uh, Indian classical music and my own composing and got to, you know, put it together in, in a unique way and really develop my myself as an artist 
and uh, intellectually as well, you know, writing a lot and, uh, you know, understanding the political, social, cultural uh, aspects of, you know, all the things that I'm doing and, and really digging deep into that. And it just so happened that my MFA thesis was due on the day that we were to play at the David Letterman show. Wow. And I had, I had to call up my advisor. I'm like, uh, you got to give me a, a day or a couple days here. Um, uh, and then it ended up being several days because I heard from everyone I ever met in my life right after that. Oh, of course. <laughs> what, what were those artists like to work with? That was, They were very fun. Cindy was very appreciative of the music. And, um, you know, Wyclef said, just do whatever you want. Just play in here and don't play there. My favorite part was was actually, though, uh, when, uh, you know, Paul Schaefer in the band, of course, we were setting up during the commercial break, and I plugged in my sitar, and they were playing Bob Marley's Could You Be Loved? Hmm. And then so I just plugged in my sitar. I just couldn't help it. You know, we were supposed to be quiet, but I started going, dunk a dunk a dunk a dunk 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 Then Paul Schaefer looks at me through his sunglasses, and he gives me that look I've seen so many him give so many musicians he's like yeah man he broke down the <laughs> band and i'm like soloing over it and Wyclef is like could you be loved it was that was a good moment that's about as good as it gets what yeah. you know what i what i love about great musicians is we always appreciate great musicians of other uh, other forms and uh, especially when we, we may not know the music like as well like to hear someone who's really good is always inspirational to us it's, it's just such a gift you know for sure for sure so they, and then were they were they uh, were they sympathetic at your university to your? Uh... <laughs> they were very sympathetic, very sympathetic. Yeah, Good. yeah. It was it was big for them too. They were like uh, you know sharing that stuff everywhere. <laughs> what year was that? That was uh, two thousand and uh, two thousand ten. Wonderful. So, and tell me about the formation of the Brooklyn Raga Massive. How does that fit in your New York journey? Yeah, it's you know definitely part of the arc. When I when I came here, there well, there was a, a community for sure of people who, who loved Indian classical music and uh, you know were performing and uh, you know there's the Chandayan sent uh, they they produced a you know a all night concert for many many years and and produced many concerts besides that um, and. Uh, but I kind of got to know a lot, a lot of people who were kind of, you know, more closer to my age and, uh, you know, some of them Indian Americans like myself, some people coming from India and many other Americans uh, or other play people from all over the world uh, who is just, you know, so serious about the music. And we all got to know each other and we were playing together for years even before uh, we just had this, uh, you know, barbecue one day. And I was like, man, this is like the Brooklyn Raga Massive right here. Look at all these people. And then we're like, oh, yeah, that's a great that's a great name. I, I will take credit for coining the name. Um, but it's the power of the community that, uh, that really made it happen. So, you know, soon after that, we started a weekly concert series um, just in the back room of, of this uh, bar that was in our neighborhood. And, uh, you know, we feature a different act every week. And then after that, we have a jam session that's based on a jazz jam session kind of model, you know, where musicians are welcome to come up and sit in. And uh, and so we control the flow of the night, uh, you know, just curating as people are, are there and, and whoever wants to play. And, you know, all the all the best musicians in New York, they started coming up to to our jam session. And, you know, it, originally, you know, the Indian classical musicians, of course. And then many other jazz musicians, African musicians, uh, Middle Eastern, you know, they've, uh, in our jam session, we definitely not so uh, strict about Indian classical, in our, all our presentations, actually. So we, we present a band or Indian classical music. A band usually has some Indian influence in it, uh, but not even necessarily any Indian instruments, you know. Um, and the jam session can also be more of the same. And after doing that for a few years, we started a nonprofit, 501c3, and then it's really taken off. I think we're in our, let's see, we've had Brooklyn Raga Massive for eight years, and uh, maybe five of those years we've been a nonprofit, and uh, we've just been really successful with raising money uh, in grants, and uh, very lucky. Uh, it's, even now, we've just gotten some some 
some big grants in, since COVID times has started, and that's helped us really kind of keep paying musicians and, you know, to put on similar, just like what we're doing now. We have workshops with an interview kind of thing, and we're able to, to, to pay the artists and give it free to our, uh, offer it free to the community to watch. Um, so that's been exciting as we've, uh, you know, as we've became a nonprofit, we also started developing, you know, uh, before we were presenters, but then we started thinking about Brooklyn Raga Massive as what, if we're a band and what, what are we, and what, what do we play? We're a collective of musicians and it's, so it's different kind of every time that we perform. But we, what we did is we started doing different repertoire. Of course, we did Terry Riley's In C. We, we released a record of that on Northern Spy. Uh, Terry Riley, of course, studied Indian classical music and has been a big influence on me uh, and us. And uh, we've also done, you know, a John Coltrane tribute. Uh, John, and Al- John and Alice Coltrane, I should say. And it was even Alice who was actually more into the Indian music. Wow. Um, so, so we reinterpret their songs with Indian instruments as well as a full jazz band and, you know, some serious jazz artists. Um, I just love the, um, the your, your encompassing of style and uh, different elements and your Brooklyn Raga Massive's evolution into uh, the classical, Western classical, the Eastern, the jazz. All these different elements come together as a truly uni- unique New York story. That's absolutely right. Yeah, it's, uh, we got this residency at Pioneer Works, amazing venue in Red Hook, um, cavernous old foundry. And uh, so, you know, we had moved our weekly around for a number of years to many different venues in, in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And then we got to Pioneer Works and it's just enormous. They gave us three months there. And uh, so we were like, OK, we got to step up the programming now. So then that's when we first uh, we, we did our well, we did like, a you know, even a, a George Harrison tribute and then a separate classic rock tribute. And then we had kind of our Africa meets India night and uh and we did a Ravi Shankar tribute as well, where we performed a piece from the Ravi Shankar Philip Glass album and, and many other things of his. And um, so really got dove deep into different repertoire and trying to, you know, produce on a much higher level. And since then have uh, been, you know, we work a lot with the Rubin Museum, great partners of ours, uh, put a lot, a lot of concerts on there. And um, so it's really come along. Uh, over the years and uh, we have lots of people who we call members is a loose loose term but basically if you come and show up at our jam session and play you're a, you're, you're a member you know that's that's it well, that keeps everything fresh and new and exciting. And um, I've been on the, your YouTube channel. I encourage my uh, the listeners to go on your YouTube channel and subscribe because there's such interest. In, their recordings are fantastic. The musicians are all so wonderful individually, but it's also a unique kind of sound. And I uh, explore. It's fun to explore, and I encourage you to do that because it's really worth the time. Absolutely, yeah. We've been fortunate to work with a lot of great uh, video artists as well, and. Uh, and yeah, we try to document as much as possible. Um, so the, the, there's a lot of stuff up there after over the years. So how does uh, visual art affect your musical art? Um, for sure. Well, my wife is a visual artist, so I. I you figured know, that we, might be a softball question. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, we work together sometimes, and. Uh, and so I'm inspired by her work. It's got, it kind of features shapes, a certain kind of mushroomy shape that she likes to make. And, and that work can be seen in this uh, sculptural bench, which I, she just made and I just installed upstate the other day. And uh, in various paintings and uh, light, light in wood sculptures and, uh, and also using uh, tabla heads. She's taken... Um, Indian of uh, the one of the main Indian percussion in the which is called tabla, and uh, so she takes these old drum heads and skins and creates these different sculptures out of them. So we've been, uh, and now in these kind of COVID times, we've been, uh, you know, taking some of her artwork, uh, some animations she's she's created out of her her two D and three D stills, two D and three D stills of her artwork, because she made animations of that, and I'm been working in doing music for that and 
and uh, also been experimenting now with a lot myself with the video and uh, you know bringing in different effects and mixing in my video with her her video or, or other images too so been learning a lot about that in these times well it seems to me like you're always evolving personally you're always searching and i think that's the most important characteristic of any artist is that that intellectual curiosity that drives forward and always adding that's right that's right you know and so in in this time you know i spent a couple weeks you know doom scrolling and watching lots of netflix and then i was like okay i got to get serious about the, some music here and you know eventually uh we started uh, brooklyn raga massive started doing uh in april we started doing twice a week workshops um similar kind of podcast format just like this and uh and so that's been inspirational to uh you know to learn from each other all these different artists in our community and to still give them some work and and uh and give our community, uh, you know, all this content for free. And, and, you know, we can all learn from each other so much. I think it's really important to, to find that time to learn from each other, to connect as artists, because we're all so separated in this period and we're all in front of our screens so much that, uh, that whenever we can reach out, I think it's so important that we keep our communities together. That's right. And I've just been uh, obsessed with, with this, honestly. I've been on a journey of learning uh, many different softwares to, you know, of course, for live streaming, my own personal live streams, and also working with my wife and doing the, the videos. And, uh, and then with Brooklyn Raga Massive, you know, uh, producing these, uh, these workshops. And then, but my real goal has been to uh, create a, a using technology to way, find ways to play together in real time. And of course, with latency, uh, it's very hard to do music in real time. Because on Skype, on Zoom, everything, you know, the latency, it might not sound like much when we're talking, but it's when you're playing music, it's a very strict beat, you know. Yeah, I haven't found a way to do that in um, like choral music. Uh, yeah, we haven't found a way to do that yet. And I've been, we've been the, in my entire community of choral conductors and and university professors have been trying to find this, but we haven't been able to figure that out yet. So I, I you know, early on in this, I started researching this and I've uh, checked out many different things, including uh, Live Lab, which is this uh, browser-based. Uh, thing that's made for for arts uh, artists to share video and audio and media content um, and uh, they have a live lab created by culture hub uh, which is actually part of La Mama theater um, so I was in they actually produced a show for Brooklyn Raga massive our, our Raga Makam project combining Raga and Makam, Arabic Makam music mm. um, so but they still had a, a latency there but uh, you know, I was really inspired how they did it. They all the musicians were playing in real time, but they were playing, uh, you know, not not really keeping a strict rhythm and just kind of improvising off of each other. And so, you know, the more experimental music is, you know, or spacey, you know, you can get get a, get away with less latency. But if you want rhythmic music, uh, you have to use some things. So I, you know, I've discovered uh, Jamulus is one of the the the, the it's a whole community jamulus where people are they, they start little servers and they're jamming together it's very easy to get on uh, easy to to learn and you know plug kind of a plug and play hmm. thing um, the quality is a little compressed audio but you can get low latency and I, I use that with some of my students and I'm able to play you know we're playing sitar you know together at very very low latency especially if you're within a few hundred miles of each other you can achieve very low latency. If you're playing with somebody on the other side of the country, in the middle of the country, then then there's going to be a latency. But then it's also interesting to explore what that means. Uh, so you know you're creating a new musics really uh, that take the latency into account, and hmm. we you can you know you can kind of calculate what it is, and then you set the tempo to that latency basically, and then and then so we're playing, you know they're playing like a beat behind you. But there's still we're still on the beat, so they maybe there's not any strict time, but there can be kind of rhythmic kind of thing, and um, 
which works well for a lot of the looping music that I've been into. Um, so uh, eventually I discovered Arts Mesh and uh, really uh, have been struggling to learn it, took a class in it, and uh, it allows for very high quality audio and the lowest latency possible. Um, but it's it's tough because you know all the if you're trying to connect you have to really uh, get all the numbers right the recording frequency that you're using uh, the buffer length and and all these numbers have to exactly meet up but when they do and you hear that audio coming in all of a sudden it's just like crystal clear and it sounds like you're in the room with with uh, your friend this musician uh, you know it's it's a great feeling. And, you know, it's been a, a lot of starts and stops. There were some nights where we were doing this for hours and it's like 1 a.m. We finally get connected and then we're like, wow. OK, time to go to bed. Uh, don't have the energy to play the music anymore. After. Do you have to reset those connections every time you do it that you play together? You can save the, the presets. But, uh, you know, sometimes other programs in your computer might change the settings uh, without you knowing it. So. But as, as I've gone on and learned more about it, you know, it's become easier and quicker. And now we've gone on to, uh, with Brooklyn Raga Massive, we've just produced our first event using Arts Mesh. And what we did is we made a live recording. We played together in real time using Arts Mesh for the audio and using a Zoom call for the video. And then, then we synced it together and, uh, you know, and mixed the audio and cut up the video and, you know, so bring in one person at a time or four up or two up or, you know, all the things that you do. And uh, so we produced a video that's going to be premiering next Tuesday and presented by uh, Live at the Gantries and the Kupferberg Center for the Arts. Uh, they'll be premiering this video, this half-hour concert that is yeah, live recording. Innovation in the time of COVID, I love it. That's one of the, the themes of the show is how how artists are are using this time to advance themselves, to advance the art form, to come up with new ideas. So when we come out of this, we'll be ready to um, to innovate. And I think um, one thing that we that the art that 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 uh, tra tra the tra tragedies have done in the, in uh, looking at the past is that people come out of that with new ideas, with new um, a newfound appreciation for what music means to all of us. It really is. I mean, I just want to bring our community together, you know, find ways for us to really play together. And, you know, it's it's challenging, but I, I've just now with this video, I've proven to myself and to our, our community that we can do it. And uh, it's hard, but we're going to be, uh, you know, producing a lot more uh, recorded, pre-recorded and eventually moving into live live concerts like that. And uh, it's exciting because I you don't see it much. Not many people are really doing it. Not it even. It takes a lot of technical skill and a lot of your research. That's why you can do it. Is you're doing the work, putting the, uh, putting that research time in. That's right. I mean, not even like you know. I watch you know these late night TV shows like you know Stephen Colbert and stuff, and they're all doing this stuff from home. But they they are not even able to venture there uh, no. to this to this level. So I feel like, you know, it's, it's exciting. We're, we're uh, you know, breaking new ground here. It was fascinating to watch the late night shows who have huge studios and massive budgets all go to where we are at home. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, yeah. And they had a, a lot of them had a lot of trouble adapting to that format and to making it. A lot. Yeah, I felt like some of the stuff that I was doing was like looked better than what I would agree. Some of it was not the good. Beginning. The yeah, podcasts like, were higher level. Yeah, I mean, it's like, can you give these guys some good cameras or some, some lights? Can't you just pass that stuff around? Like, you know, John Baptiste, like, give him a good camera. Uh, why, why, why are you, is he suffering with this? You know, all the correspondence for all these shows, they should all have a camera. It's one thing we're talking about with BRM as we develop this. Um, uh, we we want to make a kit, a suitcase with a laptop that's got all the programs we need and it's all set up. We know it's ready to go and set up. We know it's ready. It's, uh, a light, uh, maybe an, another camera. And uh, that's so. So the people who don't have the technology, they could still participate um, and we can pass this 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 suitcase around, you know, to the person who has a gig that week with a, with a box of Clorox, Clorox wipes and uh, and, you know, empower our community like this. So this is something we're now and we're still working on but uh 
who knows how long this is going to be going on. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to, it's going to be going on until we have the vaccine until things improve. I mean, um, according to my, my field and the national association teachers of singing and the American choral directors association, they're looking at a year, two years possible. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, for my entire, like the choral orchestral community, we're all just, we have to like figure out ways to produce and ways to be creative and ways to do virtual and some hybrid programs. I just got my first contract, my first contract for a concert at the end of August where they, they're going to do a, like a, like a drive-in movie. Everyone comes in their cars in a large parking lot in Long Island. And oh, the, beautiful. the orchestra is going to be socially distanced, strings with masks, winds in a different part, all put through microphones and then beamed into the cars. Right. Oh, wow. I don't know. It's going to be Amazing. fascinating as a conductor. And I, I'm just going to conduct film scores, but um, it's going to be fascinating to see how it works and the challenges. Did, how do they do signal applause? I think they're going to honk their horns or they're going to flash their lights. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we are in uncharted territory. This is definitely uncharted territory. So I feel like these skills that I've been learning, uh, you know, are really going to apply, you know, as well as art smash, you know, I've been learning OBS, open source broadcasting software. To We're using it right put now. These together. You're using it right now, I thought so. And uh, and to produce all these, you know, live streams. And uh, I've been also, you know, getting in more into the video side. OBS can control the video, of course. But I've been lately getting into VDMX, which is kind of a VJ software, uh, video mixing. And it's got all these great effects. And you can make the effects audio reactive as well. So that's a new thing. And i uh, also been getting into Ableton Live. Now, I've been, for a number of years now, maybe I'd say the last six, seven years, I've been getting into a solo looping music, um, using my overtone singing and, uh, and some percussion. And now I've, you know, I used to use this app on my uh, iPad called Loopy to do it. It's a very intuitive, easy-to-use thing. Each, each loop is a, is a circle, and you turn it on to record. You, you hit it again to stop recording. You hit it again, it goes off. You know, very easy. Um, I used that for a number of years, but now I've been learning Ableton Live, which is, of course, one of the most powerful softwares for, for looping and live, live looping. And um, I've really been getting deep into recreating that experience I had with Loopy uh, with Ableton and uh, now using my iPad as a, to kind of, as a, like a MIDI controller to, to control just the, the functionality that I want in Ableton to create loops and uh, experimenting with putting video in there as well and, uh, you know, the audio reactive thing or, or some of the, the buttons that I use to control the music, I can use them to, to control different video things too. That's, that's what I'm moving towards, let's say. So this idea of looping, I've, I've heard you do it live, and it's really incredible the amount of different types of musical um, nuance you can get in a performance that's looped over. And how, how, When did you start using that technology? When did you start to experiment with that? Yeah, I would say it was uh, about, yeah, six years ago. And I, I just, my wife actually made the suggestion to me. And I, she had this old looping pedal, so I started to get into it. And I just found it really worked well with the overtone singing that I do. And just to kind of create this textural music, uh, uh, you know, it would be a very slow moving, maybe not, not, not even in rhythm. In fact, originally, uh, what I'm really was most interested in uh, is loops that are out of phase with each other. So each loop is a different length. And not and not a multiple, not a direct multiple. You know, completely different length. So you know, so every time that the loops come around against each other, they're in different places. So it's constantly, it's always changing, just slowly, very slowly. And I count the the music in breaths, not bars. You know, like three breaths is the loop. And then so I create these chords and textures uh, that just slowly move and phase in and phase out. And um, have become later on come on come to uh, you know incorporating the sitar into that, especially in these last few months, incorporating the sitar into it and uh, and and the percussion as well. So, uh, could you demonstrate some of that for our audience? I think your your sure. video is off because we had some connectivity problems, but I think okay, it seems like things have uh, settled back down in the internet land. 
Okay, my, my video is off now. Is it is it back now? And we are just doing the tech now. So I'll just, uh, as we set that up, I'll mention a take, bit about... We're going to take 10 seconds to just do a quick okay. tech check and put you on. We'll be right back, and um, Neil Burgar is going to actually play and demonstrate some of the loop technology for us. Delighted that Neil's going to actually play, uh, demonstrate his his unique synthesis of music. What do you call this piece, Neil? I let's call it uh, of the moment. <laughs> Perfect. Bass. <laughs> Thank you. 
something like that <laughs> such amazing elements you can weave together into such a, a unique composition i mean uh, obviously that's a lifetime's worth of experimentation in your music and i can't imagine a more unique synthesis after hearing your story and and watching it come together um, the technology really enables you to do so many different things so so much and just to be creative uh, you know for a long time i shunned kind of even what i just did at the end kind of playing in 4-4 you know uh, where as opposed to the looping and i mean having the asynchronous loops the aleatoric um, but you know you can get music, them like too. terry riley's in there i hear it it's all there and yes. then you found you found a groove that 4-4 that kind of almost rock and roll groove that you found and you're able to improvise off that yeah it's amazing yeah thank you i feel like the uh, slowly i'm even you know envisioning incorporating you know more and more percussion instruments and I, I just feel like the master of the universe i'm just like controlling it all and you know eventually when i get the video going from the same midi controller it's gonna be yeah i i, I will be master of the universe <laughs> well keep on striving for that that uh that unique uh way of producing and making music and uh that is totally you Thank you, Jason. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to be here. I've said this before. Let's you. find the time to write something with chorus in it. Yeah, Let's get, yeah. Overtone we'll get back on that vowel sounds. Absolutely, using vowel sounds, using some, uh, you know, you can use different uh, fourths and fifths, and we can use different core harmonies and uh, come up with some aleatoric elements for the different right. sections. I would love to put exactly. that in the mix. Yes, yes. And I've, I've been getting into, you know, using words... I let words kind of, you know, I kind of mix vowels and consonants together to experiment in different sounds, and so words kind of come down. I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, that seems, I mean not be so crazy as it is to me, but you know, using using you know really enunciating the vowel sounds. I do it. I do a lot of kids' music too, and then I introduce some of this overtone singing and looping to the kids, and I use their names, and then you know the you know. You know, Johnny, Johnny, and then make the loops with all their names, and they, they go nuts for it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Neil. It's been a pleasure to, to have this conversation with you and to hear about your innovations. How can people find out more about your work? Yes, you can go to my website, neilmorgai.com. That's Neil with two E's. Um, Morgai, M-U-R-G-A-I dot com. And um, I, re I just released an album in uh, early part of the year, uh, before right before these times. And it combines my compositions for sitar, violin, cello, and tabla 
with some of these overtone singing improvisations and compositions, uh, solo solo work. And then, of course, with BrooklynRagamassive.com, you can see where I am the co-artistic director there. And uh, so we're producing workshops twice a week on uh, Indian classical music and also uh, many other art forms. We've had a, a cu- amazing Cuban singer, Melvis Santa, just do her thing and just you know show us what what where she's coming from and so uh next week uh next month it just so happens that we'll have my uh my teacher uh pandit krishna mohan bhat who's going to be doing four weeks each week is going to talk about a different raga and describe how the raga so that uh, any musician can kind of understand the 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 way it goes and then play all these old recordings of, and, and different so we can see how how the what a raga really is fascinating well, thank you so much for being a part of Music Matters 2020, and we can't wait to hear uh, to see what you do in the future. All right. Thanks, Jason. We'll be in Bye touch. now. All right. Thank you for joining us for Music Matters 2020. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you here, and uh, please make sure you subscribe and join our unique podcast community as we delve into these issues and with great artists from the community like Neil Murgai. Uh, We'd like to remind everyone that we have a Patreon page. It's a way to support artists these days is Patreon. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash mm2020. And for the first five subscribers, we're going to give a t-shirt. Looks like this. And a mug that looks like this. So if you are a supporter of this show, first five will get these t-shirts and the mug. Thank you so much for watching us today. Remember, like our videos. Subscribe on YouTube and hit that bell for the most up-to-date information on upcoming guests and topics. And um, thank you for joining us tonight and keep music alive.